Welcome to Season 2, Episode 49 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Jane Rawson. Jane is the author of the novels From the Wreck and A Wrong Turn at the Office of Unmade Lists. Her new novel, A History of Dreams, is out now through Brio Press. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thanks for having me, Ben. How's life in the beautiful Huon Valley? It is super beautiful today. It's like going to be 17 degrees or something. It's sunny. It's really windy. Um, it's Yeah, it's great. It's great here. Maybe winter will end soon in October, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, it is beautiful down there, and I am so desperate to go back. You should come down. It's just down the street. <laughs> I will. I'll get on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're down the road from the lovely Ben Walter as well? I am. Ben Walter was my first neighbourhood friend. I mostly moved just to be near Ben. That's what I came here for, but don't <laughs> tell him. Um, yes, yeah. So we're, we're both uh, near Huonville in the Huon Valley. What made you move down to Tasmania, apart from the fact that it's a beautiful place to live? Lots of things. Uh, it was partly I'd written a book about uh, preparing yourself for life during climate change, um, which had, you know, a lot of information about heat waves and fires and floods and things like that. Um, and when I finished that book, it kind of felt like a choose your own adventure of which climate change disaster do you most want to be afflicted by. <laughs> and I felt like Melbourne's heat waves and power cuts were not something I was going to deal with well and that I'd rather take my chances with bushfires in Tasmania. Um, so there was that. And just that it was so much cheaper for me to live here, which meant I could work for an organisation that I support that can't pay as much and have time to write and I also wanted to be close to animals, which worked out really well. There are like, do you know what paddy melons are? Yeah, little, of yeah, yeah, little tiny wallabies. There's yeah. two in the backyard at the moment that both have miniature babies. They're like mice that are just hopping out of their out of their pouches and hopping around the garden and hopping back in. It's the best. So cute. You'll have to yeah. send me a photo. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Yes, it is such a lovely place. And yeah, I completely agree with you on the fact that um, the Melbourne heat waves and the electricity cuts and brownouts we seem to have constantly. Now we have to pay like, I don't know how much for gas and electricity as well. So yeah, yeah it's fun. Yeah. Lots of fun yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I want to ask you as well, before you moved to Tasmania, you spent time in Melbourne. And more interestingly, in San Francisco, working with Lonely Planet. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess when most people think about Lonely Planet, they think about the guidebooks, uh, which is what I started at Lonely Planet as, as a guidebook editor, um, but pretty quickly moved on to the website, which was then brand new. Nobody knew what the internet was really for and how it worked. And Lonely Planet thought it was just some kind of fad that, you know, probably people would get over quickly. So they gave a few of us the chance to just muck around and see if you can make a website. So, uh, yeah, I, I was on the web team and they moved all their web operations to California, sent me across with them. And the main thing I did was set up a bulletin board called the Thorn Tree, which was kind of a precursor to social media in some ways. Um, and I spent a few years doing that. And then I quit and went to be a travel writer for a year for them. Um, so I got to see that side of it as well. 
that's kind of the dream job that I would have is being a travel writer with Lonely Planet. Yeah, look, it's you don't get paid. It's more like a dream hobby, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty good. I think yeah. I'd take a year off and do that. Yeah, it's it's not a bad thing to do for a year. <laughs> and you also grew up in Canberra, which is um, for those listening outside Australia, it's Australia's capital city, and it's not the most exciting place in the world, is it? I love Canberra so much. <laughs> I am a massive Canberra fan. Uh, so, yeah, I, I love that it's politically progressive, that it's committed to clean energy, that there are trees everywhere, that there are beautiful birds everywhere, the air is fresh. People are keen for ideas and change. Things are going on there. Everyone hates it. Everyone in Australia hates Canberra, but <laughs> I love it. It's the best. <laughs> I have a confession to make because I love it too. Um, Yay! (laughs) It's not very popular. It's definitely not a popular opinion to have. But um, No. Yeah. And, um, yes, I have a friend who's working there now and she doesn't mind it actually, but, yeah. Yeah, it's a good place. If I uh, couldn't live where I live now, that's the only other place I'd want to live, I think. Yeah, I think apart from the fact that it's expensive, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Nice one. All right. Let's move on to your writing. You've written several novels, a novella, nonfiction, as you were talking about before with the climate change stuff. Um, what started your journey as a writer? Um, I think that, well, I, I, I'm one of those people who always wanted to be a writer, um, but I wanted to be a journalist. So I studied journalism, uh, went to uni in Canberra, studied journalism there, and it was mainly because it seemed like a good way to make the world a better place, which is something I've kind of been obsessed with since I was a kid, I suppose. Um, So yeah, studied journalism, realized I did not have the temperament to be a journalist at all, Um, not nearly aggressive enough. Um, So went from that into working as an editor and mostly just working with other people's words for maybe 20 years, I guess. Um, Didn't start writing creatively at all until I was in my 30s I think um yeah and that was just a little bit of fooling around really and it wasn't until I moved to San Francisco and met people there who were enthusiastically doing things just for the hell of it um like let's write a novel in a month um I was I was in San Francisco for year two of National Novel Writing Month and I was friends with the guy who started that up um so yeah that just ideas like that like just do it who cares it doesn't matter it's not a big deal um it wasn't really something I'd experienced during my life in Australia so I think yeah it was it was when I moved there that I started to write not seriously because it wasn't serious um but but to really write to write to write more stuff and with your writing did it kind of progress to things like novels or did you go to short stories or how did it progress Um, I wrote a couple of little short stories, uh, which I was lucky enough that when I came back to Melbourne, um, I made friends here at Lonely Planet that I went back to again. Um, I made friends who had little publishing companies in Melbourne and who would publish my short stories. Uh, So it wasn't, well, actually, Formaldehyde was the first big thing that I wrote, which is a novella, and I wrote that during National Novel Writing Month. So, yes, I guess the first thing I wrote was a novel but I didn't really try to publish that or anything for ages so yeah short stories for like five or six years and then I started thinking about well maybe it's possible to get published and maybe I should have a try of writing something that could potentially be a book okay amazing well speaking of that let's move on to your new book 
um, yeah. A History of Dreams, begins in the 1930s in Adelaide. Your protagonists are four girls. They start a club called the Semaphore Supper Club, and they all have the ability to see dreams to people, which is really cool. We soon find out that this Australia isn't quite the Australia that uh, we all know, and it's an alternate kind of Australia where it's taken over by fascists and Nazis and people like that. And basically their dreams for their future are kind of at risk of being crushed, I guess. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your protagonist and the setup of the book? Yeah, sure. So um, I wanted to write a book that had more than one main protagonist. Um, And so this is about a a group of young women, uh, Margaret and Audrey and Esther and Phil, um, who have met each other mostly through school. They've just finished up high school in Adelaide and are heading out into the world with all these dreams of what they want to do with their lives, how they want to be. They've all been good at school. Um, They have high promise, but um, as they enter into the wider world, they realise that most of the things they want aren't possible for women. They won't be supported to do them. They'll be actively discouraged from doing them. Uh, Audrey comes from a family that has the ability to change people's dreams and to change their behaviour through their dreams. And Audrey teaches the other girls how to do this. Uh, And they start using that power to change little things to help make their lives more the kind of lives that they would like to have. But as that's happening, there's also, as you said, the rise of uh, a fascist movement within the Australian government that through a series of events comes to power. And the things that these girls are standing up against become huge and deadly and oppressive. And each of them has to deal with Will they continue to fight against this at incredibly high risk? Um, Will they decide to, you know, just marry a reasonable man and have a quiet life and keep their heads down? Um, So, yeah, it's a a story about what what are our responsibilities during a time of terribleness? Um, How active do we need to be? How much do we need to care? Can we slip away quietly and hope to be ignored? Um, and do we have any right to feel joy during terrible times? How important is joy and friendship and creativity? So those were the kinds of things I wanted to write about. And it's also based extremely loosely, obviously, on the life of my grandmother and my great aunt, who were both excellent students at school, but neither of them went on to do any of the things that they had dreamt of doing. And I think some of the oppression that these uh, this government kind of wages upon people is doing things like not letting women go to university and making them marry and do lots of those really, you know, oppressive things we're seeing in places like Afghanistan. Do you want to tell us a bit more about how the girls are oppressed? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, it's the, the kinds of things I was writing about were not that far from life for a lot of women in Australia in the 1930s anyway. Um, and, you know, not just in places like Afghanistan now, but obviously the US is seeing a a massive rise in in the oppression of women. Um, So yeah, it was that the government wanted them to behave like uh, a feminine ideal, to devote themselves to having children and creating a strong race of Australians and being at home and looking after the kids and raising, raising great young men who could, you know, continue on the great Australian tradition of being great men. Um, so yes, it was about not working, about having children, about getting married, about not wandering around doing whatever the hell you wanted. The novel reminds me a bit, 
not saying they're the same in any way, but a bit of things like The Handmaid's Tale sure. and, you know, Man in the High Castle and, and probably even End by John A. Scott, the Australian. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I want to ask, did you have some specific influence for writing this book and what's the appeal of the alt history novel? Yeah, N by John A. Scott was a massive influence on this novel. I was so blown away by that book when I read it. Um, It's not in any way a perfect novel, um, but it's got so many exciting ideas in it and so many great ways of commenting on the way that Australia is now by creating an alternative Mm -hmm. history of Australia. Um, Scott's interest, I think, in that book is mainly in artists and the effect that that the repressive fascist government he created had on the arts. Um, I was interested in taking that idea and making it more about women. Um, But yeah, it is, uh, History of Dreams is very much a response to N. Um, Yeah, which is such a cool book, I think. It is a really cool book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I came across it when looking for books like Gravity's Rainbow and things like that, because a lot of people refer to it as kind of the Australian Gravity's Rainbow. It is a big shaggy novel. It's like 800 pages. But um, I reckon there's there's an amazing 400-page book in there, but I think possibly um, might need a haircut. But yeah, yeah, it might need a little bit, or you could just appreciate it for the, yeah. the massive sprawling mess that it is, I guess. <laughs> um, I think the other the other things I was thinking about when I was writing this um, was Elizabeth Knox's young adult uh, Dream Hunter books, um, which are about, it's, a, it's kind of an alternative New Zealand, a more fantastical New Zealand, where some people have the power to harness dreams and then spread them to people in these kind of theatre situations and some people are lucky enough to have that power and others aren't and it's about two girls one of whom does and one of whom doesn't and this kind of shadowy alternate cabal of people who are making awful dreams that are destroying society Uh, and I love those books when I have when I pack my bushfire evacuation box at the beginning of each summer I usually chuck Dream Hunter in there. I feel like that would be something that if I was trapped in an evacuation centre that would be very comforting for me. Um, so, yeah, and I love Elizabeth Knox's books. Books, <laughs> books generally, she's one of my favourite writers, I think. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to write about was uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm, um, which is a book that came out, I think, last year, the year before, um, and is about what what are our responsibilities as activists? What does nonviolence mean uh, at a time when great state violence is being enacted on us through the continuing creation of you know coal mines and oil wells? Um, how should we stand up to that? And what are the morals and ethics of that? So that was also a really big influence on my writing in a history of dreams. One of the things that I found really interesting about the book as well like living in Melbourne during the COVID lockdown, um, how easy it is to kind of let society become basically a police state. Was was the book something you wrote during that period or did that influence Um, it? It was not here in Tasmania. Uh, We obviously did not experience COVID at all in the same way that Melbourne Mm. did. Uh, We were pretty much free to go about our business. We became a hermit state um, and, you know, continued on, uh, so I think the 
the feelings I had from that period were less about being a police state and more about that idea of when other people are suffering, what, what does that mean for how you enjoy the world? It was an experience of having very recently left Melbourne just before that, um, not knowing any of that was coming and being here and being able to do basically whatever I wanted except leave the state while knowing that everyone I knew in Melbourne was going through this hideous experience. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was, I think, the part of COVID that most influenced this writing, this idea of, of uh, your responsibility when other people are suffering. I also want to ask you about, I guess, in Australia, especially in the in the 30s, possibly even before that, I think we did kind of flirt with that idea of fascism and there was a lot of that stuff going on. Was that something that you, I guess, researched for the book? Definitely. Um, and that was also something I really wanted to write about. I feel like we're super self-congratulatory about our military history and about how we've always been fighting for freedom and... Uh, how uh, Australia has always been on the right side. Um, but I don't think that's the case. Um, and that, yeah, leading into World War II, there were definitely plenty of voices in Australia that were like, firstly, we don't need to get involved in all this stuff. Who cares? Let Europe have its war. It's not our problem, um, which obviously I have some sympathy for. Um, but there were also plenty of people who were like, this Hitler guy seems pretty cool, actually. Uh, I think he has some really good ideas. Um, there was a lot of alignment between Australian ideas of a strong white race, um, of, of men being outdoors in, in the sun and the sand and the surf and having powerful bodies and being healthy um, that people saw reflected in Hitler's Germany and um, considered a good way to go, basically. Um, you know, for some people that that was anti-Semitism, but for a lot of other people, it was just, you know, this is a great white country. We're a great white race and we deserve to, to be strong and to get ahead. And, um, you know, Hitler's got some cool ideas about that. And it was particularly prevalent in the arts here, which I think is super weird and a very um, quirky Australian take on being into fascism was that it was writers, poets, um, who who really liked some of those ideas. It was a yeah. very nationalist country and a very racist country, obviously. So, yeah. I know that uh, for some of my relatives who made it out here just before the war, often, you know, in Western Australia especially, you know, the boats would get, keep moving, go around to some of those, like, lefty eastern states and see how you go. But, yeah, we're not taking you in here. Yeah, for sure. We were not generally sympathetic to refugees leaving mm. leaving Europe because of the war. Um, there's some horrible stories about things that were done to Italians, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the book is set in Adelaide, which for our non-Australian listeners is the capital of South Australia here. Generally speaking, around the country, I think Adelaide is seen as pretty boring, apart from the fact that there's serial killers there, lots of Nazis and like the nice Adelaide Hills there bit of wine, um, nothing much else happens. Was that one of the reasons you chose to set the book there? Uh, this book and From the Wreck are both based on my family history, um, mm. obviously with a lot of liberties taken. Uh, but um, my mum's side of the family is from Adelaide. And 
for whatever reason, I am fascinated by Adelaide. I love thinking about Adelaide. I love having an imaginary Adelaide in my life. I know people talk about when they finish writing a book, how sad they are about leaving their characters. But for me, I was sad that I wasn't imaginarily walking the streets of 1930s Adelaide anymore. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd need to see a therapist, I guess, to figure out what it is. But I have a, ter <laughs> a terrible crush on Adelaide as a place. It has such dumb weather. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, I really like it. So yeah, I, I enjoy, um, I enjoy urban spaces, but not the, not the typical um, exciting urban spaces of most literature. I will never write a book set in New York or, or London, for example. I think that there, there is something about Adelaide that makes it like, I think it makes it really interesting to read about as a reader, because there's something that's not quite, I don't know, it's not quite right. There's something that feels a bit off. Um, James Bradley's book that I'm not going to be able to remember the name of, but it's a non-fiction novella that he wrote uh, about the weirdness of Adelaide and about, about murder in Adelaide. And it's so good. I recommend it. I'll try to remember what it's called. It's funny because there's a town in Adelaide, I think near Handorf, like up in the little Barossa Valley up that way, where there's quite a few people who have the same last name as I do because my last name is a German last name. Yeah. But it turns out that most of those people with the same name as my name happen to be Nazis. So yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, there were definitely plenty of Nazis. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, they all just tended to head that direction. But yeah, yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask, what are you working on at the moment? If you're at liberty to say. I'm always happy to talk about what I'm working on. I'm not one of those writers who is shy about talking about their work that they're doing. Um, so I'm working on a novel that is called Solastalgia, which started out, I was going to write a really snappy little thriller about a woman who goes back in time to the 80s from the 2060s probably to kill the people who she blames for climate change. Um, anyway, it's turning into a sprawling mess already. It's very exciting. It's got some a bit that's set in Prague in the 18th century now. Uh, the time travel bit is set in Canberra, you'll be pleased to know, in 1987. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to end up with like a far future bit that's probably in the forests of northern England about 500 years from now. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm possessed by the spirit of David Mitchell or something. And I, I was going to say Clara. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think... Um, my the the publishing journey with a history of dreams was not great uh brio is an excellent publisher i'm very happy to be with them but it was kind of a it was a wild ride and um i'm in, i'm in not a huge rush to finish a novel for publication at the moment i'm kind of just enjoying writing for writing but i'm also working on a non-fiction thing as well that is a long essay that i hope will become a book which is about our ideas of what nature is and how they're affected by various forms of nostalgia and how that makes us so hard for us to figure out what to do about nature in future because we can't let go of these nostalgic ideas. One of the things I've really enjoyed the last probably year or so has been some of the interesting Australian writing coming out because I feel like for years I put myself on a self-imposed ban on Australian literature because it was so terrible. And I found the last, you know, year or two, there have been some much more interesting things being published. But do you want to talk a tiny bit more about what you were saying about, I guess, that publishing world and especially the mainstream publishing world in Australia? Yeah, sure. Um, so From the Wreck was uh, 
a lot more successful than I had expected it to be. You know, it was a book about an alien octopus and a shipwreck in the 1850s in Adelaide. Uh, and it was something I really wanted to write, but I had no notion of it ever being read by anyone, really. It seemed like a ridiculous idea. Um, so it was shortlisted for heaps of prizes, um, won a couple of things, got published in the UK, got picked up by Picador over there, which felt huge to me. Um, and so I guess I had a notion in my head of it's an upward progression. You know, you get longlisted for the Miles Franklin. Well, your next novel will get shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. Um, I thought it would be a breeze from that point to get my next book published, particularly as A History of Dreams is probably the most accessible thing I've written. Um, you know, it has witches in it, but it's not, it's not especially weird. Um, it was... It took a really long time. And I think I, I did get an agent this time, which is I haven't had an agent before. And that was great to have someone who believed in this book, but no one much was interested in publishing it at all. And it felt like they weren't even really interested in reading it, uh, which was pretty crushing because I had developed this idea of myself as an author who, has, who was going to have a career in Australia. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely felt like your past work doesn't really count for anything. My books don't sell brilliantly, um, you know, so there's that. Um, yeah, so it was great to be picked up by Brio um, at the end of that process, and they have been such a good publisher to work with. David Henley at Brio is super into speculative fiction and um, is so sympathetic to what I'm trying to do. Uh, but it's also been really difficult to get the book into bookshops, um, which means that people aren't buying it, which means people aren't reading it. So it feels like it just feels like such a slog. Um, yeah, the publishing business in Australia. It has been nice seeing it at my local bookshops here in Melbourne. Um, so that's been nice just seeing it around. But I find that in Australia, I guess one of the real terrible things about the way books are distributed is most books are sold through department shops and they're all like your mainstream kind of publishing houses who get books in there. Yeah, and you don't really see a whole lot of diversity. Yeah, no. And, you know, uh, I certainly had a dream at some point during the early days of, of this book's publishing journey um, that it might get picked up by, you know, Penguin Random House or someone and be at PW and, you know, be read by book clubs around Australia. And, yeah, but it was not to be. Women's Day Book of the Month. Exactly. And, you know, it did get reviewed in the Women's Weekly and that was rad. That was so exciting. I was so delighted to have crossed over to something that actual women read. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was thrilling. <laughs> so I'm sure a few pensioners have picked it up. Yeah, yeah. And um, like like women in suburban book clubs too, I hope, will have picked it up who, don't, who aren't interested in the Australian literary scene. Um, mm. Yeah, that, that was really cool. <laughs> All right, let's move on to some of your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the doors of literature for you? Uh, the first book that I remember being obsessed with was when I was about 13 years old and it was Alive, the story of the Andes survivors by Piers ah. Paul Reed, uh, which you might know as yeah, the, the book where the footballers eat each other. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was absolutely obsessed with that book. I read it start to finish I just would finish it and read it again over and over I think I probably read it eight times in a row um it had 
the two of the three things I was obsessed with at the time, which were boys uh, and disaster. And yeah, any sort of disastrous tragedy was the thing I loved most of all. Uh, the other thing I was obsessed with was cricket. It didn't have any cricket, but it did have <laughs> rugby union. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that I think that book, which is a terrible book, it's, it's so bad, um, was it started my interest in Latin America, which led to you know, my interest in Chile, which led to my interest in the Pinochet coup. Uh, which led to my interest in social justice and communism um, and has kind of been the thing that has driven my writing career ever since was, you know, that I want to write about changing the world. And I think it's probably due to that stupid book that I couldn't get enough of. Uh, yeah. Have you so ever thought that. about adding cannibalism into any of your books? Uh, there's a little light cannibalism in From the Wreck. Perfect. But that, that was based on truth. So, yeah, I had no choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, other books, yeah, at around the same time, maybe a little earlier, I was also super into the book Claudius the God by uh, Robert Graves, which is the sequel to I, Claudius, the better known I, Claudius, which I didn't know about. This is also kind of typical of me that I will get into a book series at the wrong point. Um, so, yeah, that, that I just picked up off my grandma's bookshelf and again, I read it over and over again. I was so into Claudius and ancient Rome and knowing all this cool stuff that nobody else knew as a 12, 13-year-old. Um, I'm not really sure what it led to in my life or my writing or anything, but it's definitely a, a fundamental book for me. I still go read it every now and again. I love that book. Um, and I think the other main thing was like later when I was like, 16, 17, um, one of my schoolmates forced uh, Titus Grown by Mervyn Peake onto me, mm. which I was super reluctant to read because I thought it was going to be like Lord of the Rings, which I hated. Uh, and it was not at all. Um, it's such a brilliant, beautiful, strange, weird book. And mm. I think that, yeah, the, the Gormenghast series was what gave me uh, an excitement about weirdness um along with uh a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy which i think was the other main book that i was reading at that time which obviously jokes which are a huge part of my writing everything mm -hmm. i write has to be funny in some way or i can't be bothered <laughs> um what books are you currently reading or are you looking forward to or have you recently enjoyed uh, I am currently reading uh Vanessa Berry's book Gentle and Fierce uh, which is a series of essays about animals, about uh, our life among animals, urban animals mostly, uh, which I'm really, really liking. I can just pick it up and read it in bits. Um, I'm also reading uh, The Twyborn Affair by Patrick White. Oh, um, I love that book. I've just started it. Uh, it was recommended to me by Kate Croymink, uh, who wrote a Treacherous Country, Tasmania's most underrated novel such a good novel mm -hmm. um yes yeah, so I've just got into it but yeah every time I read Patrick White I'm like whoa how did nobody writes things like this anymore in Australia and actually reading Patrick White partly influenced the history of dreams because I wanted to write something where 
you go in and out of people's heads in the middle of paragraphs, mm. which is not something that ever happens in contemporary realist Australian literature. It's very much frowned on. But Patrick White does it all the time. He just wanders around between people's brains like it's no big thing. I can't believe he got away with writing a trans novel and no one kind of like picked up on it. Yeah, well, that was what Kate was saying to me. She was like, did you know that's a trans novel? And I was like, oh, I just assumed from the name it was about spies, so I've never <laughs> got around to reading it. And she was like, no, no, you should read it. So, yeah, I went and got it at the library and I'm like 20 pages in, but I love it already. Um, what else am I reading? Um, An Immense World by Ed Yong, um, which is his brand new book on animal senses that I'm listening to on audiobook. And it's so great, except I listen to it when I'm commuting in the car and I have to pull over every 10 minutes to write a bunch of notes because it's all so <laughs> exciting. And I have to keep yelling out, what? What? No, <laughs> that's crazy. Um, yeah, it's it's just great science writing. He's so good at that stuff. Uh, what am I looking forward to reading? Oh, uh, Freya Mask, who's an Australian fantasy writer uh, who's published through Tor in the US, not so much in Australia. Hmm. Um, she is writing um, a series. I read the first one called A Marvelous Light. It's about magic in England in the Edwardian era. Um, it's just so delightful and absorbing and sweet and has some really hot gay sex in it. Um, <laughs> And yeah, the second one is out in November and I cannot wait for it. It's, it's so exciting. Um, and also Jesse Cole's new memoir, Desire. Um, very excited to read that. I think Jesse is one of the most amazing nonfiction writers in Australia. She's just so good at pulling ideas together and presenting them beautifully. And I'm really keen to read her new book. Very nice. Okay. I was... This is a few weeks ago. I pulled up this review of um, A History of Dreams just for fun. And it was like, I didn't realize at the time, but it was like a, um, I guess it was a review of the, of the homosexual elements to your book, which I found like, I didn't realize when I was reading the review, but then afterwards it got kind of like four out of five on the gay scale. Oh, was, like, was it by James? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, my co-author on my climate change book. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you just quickly about that element in your book. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, one of the characters in A History of Dreams, Phil, is um, she's a lesbian. Uh, she presents, she prefers to present as male. She's not trans in any way. She, she is a woman. She wants to be a woman, but she definitely prefers to wear men's clothes. Um she is, yeah, she's not interested in any of the trappings of femininity, I guess. Um, and she thinks other girls are super hot. Uh, she, I, I wanted to write a gay character who is into being gay, um, who is not trying to repress her feelings for other girls, who is um, happy to talk to people about how she feels about other girls who is just like, this is me, take it or leave it. I don't care. I realise I'm potentially risking my life, but I, I'm, I'm like this and I'm happy with it. Um, yeah, it's, there's so much fiction, I guess, where that is a horrible struggle for characters um, as it is for many people in real life. Um, but, yeah, I, I was keen to look at some other aspects of that, to have someone who was joyful about their sexuality. Um, I love Phil. I think she's great, <laughs> even though I invented her out of my head. <laughs> it's funny because when I was reading it, it was one of those characters where I guess because it's, you know, 
like I read it as just, you know, a really normal kind of thing. And I thought that the, I guess the interesting part was that it was the 1930s and obviously the 1930s in general were pretty uh, conservative times. And yeah, so in that was Adelaide really in the 1930s. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think there yeah. were many people coming out, no. especially if not proudly. No. So yeah, um, I, but surely there were a few. There would have been a handful. Um, so, yeah, it, it's very not representative, I think, of the experience of the time, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't have happened. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with Jane Rawson. This episode is brought to you by my interview with Kanye West. Here's a sneak peek. Also, when you said I hadn't read this book, I actually haven't read any book. Reading is like eating Brussels sprouts for me. Coming soon on Beyond the Zero. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Jane's Top 10. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. My top 10 books, this was, I actually have like a top 30 books, but, you know, I've chosen 10 because you said I had to. It should be a crime. Um, (laughs) They are The Light Years by Elizabeth Jane Howard, Um, the whole Light Years series that she wrote. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about these books, but uh, she was writing in the, I think this was written in the 80s. I'm not really sure, but it's... um, set in the late 30s, early 40s, um, and is about a family, an extended family in England going through World War II, their experiences of that. And it is the most character-driven series I think I've ever read. Every single character in it, and there's like 30 of them, is super developed and gets heaps of time and you spend a lot of time inside their heads and it's just engrossing. And I think I've read it the first book three times now and the last time I read it was when COVID started it was the idea like shut up I don't want to think about any of that stuff I just I'm going to live in this other world where they have all kinds of problems and troubles and it's quite dark as well as being lovely but yeah yeah just super great realist fiction writing um I love it and she's also Uh, Martin Amos's mum Yes, that's right. And yeah. also very beautiful. People love to write all the time about how beautiful she was, but <laughs> also a very good novelist. <laughs> yeah. Um, Martin Amos's stepmom. Oh, stepmom, yes. that's right. Stepmom, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, my second book is The Long Goodbye by Philip Marlowe. Um, I will never be able to write like him, but I enjoy his, but not by Philip Marlowe. I've done it again by Raymond Chandler. I was going to say, I was going to say Raymond Chandler. And then, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This happened to me when I went to look for it on the shelf. I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, yeah, that book by Philip Marlowe. Where's it gone? It's not in the M's. And it wasn't until like a day later. I was like, oh no, it's not by Philip Marlowe. He's in it. Um, (laughs) That's how real he is to me. Uh, So yeah, I think that, um, I mostly like that book because I'm in love with the character, like just mm-hmm. totally in love with him. Um, but the also, movie's course, good too. I've never watched the movie because oh. you can't get it on any of the streaming services that I use. Mm. Uh, yeah, it sounds great and so not like the book, like yeah. such a reinterpretation of it. Mm. I would love to see it one day. Yeah. Um, yes, so there's that. Uh, the Rift by Nina Allen. Uh, she's a British 
speculative fiction writer who I don't think gets a lot of traction over here. Um, but The Rift is a story about a girl who goes missing in Northern England. Um, her family eventually assumes she's been killed. She shows up again 20 years later uh, and says that actually she was taken to another planet where she's been living for 20 years uh, in an alien society. It's a very human alien society. And now she's back. She doesn't understand how she left or why she's come home. Nobody knows if she's really who she says she is. But the coolest thing about the book is that a massive chunk of it is devoted to her life on this other planet. You think you're reading this sort of mystery book, suddenly it's a sci-fi book, and then you're just getting used to her living in that society, and then it turns into the telling of a book that's a very popular book in that sci-fi society. So it's all these books within books. She doesn't kind of apologise for her attitude to writing it like this. She's just like, here it is, take it or leave it. Um, I love its strangeness and its form. Um, and yeah, she just keeps writing. Every book she writes is different and interesting in some way. She's a very cool writer. Uh, next, uh, Dark Palace by Frank Morehouse, which is another classic example of me starting reading a series of books in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. um, I started in the middle of that trilogy uh, because my uncle said, you just need to read the first scene of this book. It's so good. And so I did, and then that was it. I was sucked in forever and ever. Um, yeah, Edith Campbell Berry is is my hero. Like so many Australian women writers, I think this this character just has a life of her own. And sadly, he died recently. He did die, and he said he was going to write a fourth book in the series, and mm. we will never have that. Oh well, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Frank Morehouse, so good. Uh, the next one would be anything by Michael Ondaatje, but if I have to choose one, I will choose Coming Through Slaughter. Uh, Ondaatje is the reader who, yeah, whatever he puts out, I will go buy it and read it instantly. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, The English Patient, like cliched as it is, was also one of my gateway books. Um, it was the one of the first books I was obsessed with the sentence level idea of writing. Uh, and he, the way that he leaves so much information out of his stories and just skips over the parts that you think are going to be the important part and, and redirects your attention elsewhere is something that I love in his writing and that I would one day love to be able to achieve. The idea that there's a whole other story going on just outside the frame of this book and that the author knows exactly what it is but didn't think he'd need to write it down for you. Why would you bother? Uh, the next book is Alexis Wright's The Swan Book, um, which I think probably anyone who's ever written climate change fiction is, is going to be in their list of books somewhere. Uh, I love it for its weirdness, for its uh, take on climate change in Australia, obviously for her amazing Indigenous sensibility and because of the jokes, it's so funny in places. It's, yeah, and, and her sense of humour, I think, is underrated. She's a very funny writer. Um, and two books that I think go together a little bit, uh, weirdly, The Captive Prince by C.S. Pacap and Rubik by uh, Elizabeth Tan, which are two of the most cunningly plotted books that I have ever read. Um, the Captive Prince series, it's three books, 
uh, the exquisite plotting in this fantasy series that is about two men who go from enemies to lovers in an extremely pornographic way. Um, that yeah, the the plotting of palace drama in those books is incredible and you get to the end of the books and you're like whoa you've been setting this up perfectly for so long a, a thing that I just can't imagine ever doing in my own writing um and Elizabeth Tan's Rubik is the same like you know there's somewhere a massive spreadsheet of all the ideas that she had and all the interlinkages between all the stories in it um it's and it has you know that delightful experimentalism and play that I think is in some of the best Australian contemporary writing at the moment um, and a sense of place in Perth as well um, mm. yeah yeah not Melbourne or Sydney but lovely Perth yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not 10 yet is it um, Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson um, I do like his uh, big idea books um, like Red Mars and uh, like Ministry of the Future, but I really love Aurora because it's got it's got so much heart in it. it it's a book, uh, it's a generation ship book about people leaving Earth um, and traveling for generations and generations to find another planet where humans might live, and it's about that idea of how beautiful and perfect earth is for us, how we are exactly meant to be together and how there isn't anything else like that anywhere. And why would you put so much effort into trying to find something else when we have this? Um, and we, it could be perfect for us if we could just make a little bit of effort. And the way he tells that story that is a story of, you know, a classic sci-fi story of adventure and heading to the stars and the slow realisation of what he really wants to tell you about this perfect earth that we live on is just so heartbreaking and beautiful. Um, he's not known for his, uh, <laughs> for his tenderness and sensitivity. Uh, he's known a lot more for his scientific detail and accuracy but I think Aurora is really sublime um, and the 10th book is Margot Lanigan's Tender Morsels uh, it was a struggle for me between that and Sea Hearts I love both her books very much but Tender Morsels has a person who is in love with a bear and is spoiler alert and is rejected by a bear and I don't think I've ever been sadder about a, a broken romance that I have about this broken romance between this middle-aged woman who is ashamed of being old because the bear doesn't love her anymore um, than I ever have been by anything romantic in any other book. Margot Lanigan is so great and um, I think it's a real pity that she hasn't written anything new for us for quite a while and who knows if she ever will again. Uh, it's a slog for speculative fiction writers in Australia. And I, I hope that Margot has not fallen victim to that because she's written some of the most brilliant books Australia's had, I think. Maybe she's happily fallen in love with a bear and she's living I her life I hope so. Oh, I hope she's living happily in a forest with a bear. <laughs> she's hibernating. Yeah. <laughs> I think so, that was 10. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you for that. What an interesting list. Yeah, I, I like a lot of different kinds of books. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Very cool. All right. Well, before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can come and stalk you online and uh, where we can go and buy A History of Dreams and your other books? For sure. Um, you can find me at janerawson.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter most of the time. Sometimes I disappear off there. Uh, at Frippet. Uh, and A History of Dreams, I can guarantee you can get it on Booktopia, who own mm -hmm. my publisher. Uh, but your local bookshop may or may not have it. You can always ask them to order it in if you want to. Uh, my other From the Wreck is more widely available in local bookshops and the other ones, you won't get them anywhere. Google them, I don't know. At the library. <laughs> Libraries definitely have my books. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. I will have to read more of your books because I really did enjoy this one. And yeah, it's recommended if you like uh, alternate histories of Australia set in 1930s in Adelaide. If you like witches fighting Nazis, you'll be happy. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great fun speaking with you. Thank you, Ben, for having me. Thanks once again to Jane Rawson. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod and you can email us at BeyondZeroPod at gmail.com. Don't forget to go and leave us a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash beyondzero. We'll see you for your next episode next week.